So as uh, Brad mentioned as he was leading worship earlier this morning, uh, we are actually in the final week of a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And uh, what we've done is the first week we had a, an overview of the Ten Commandments, and I talked about all sorts of different things. And then over the course of the last uh, ten weeks, including today, we've been covering, covering each of the individual commandments that are located there in Exodus chapter 20. Now let me give you a couple big 30,000-foot uh, views to remind you uh, sort of, of of the important things about the Ten Commandments. The first is this. The Ten Commandments, we've talked about this already, the Ten Commandments describe the world that you actually wish existed. Let me say that one more time. The Ten Commandments describe a world that you actually wish really existed. It's the society that you want. It's the culture you want. It's a, it's a place where marriage and family is protected. It's a place where private property is protected. It's a place where you have the chance to rest and to worship. In all these ways, it really paints a picture of the world that you wish existed. And at the same time, it protects the fabric of society and culture as God intended it for be, to be. Now, it's, it's important that I mention those two things because this idea of the Ten Commandments has been so politicized in so many ways. It's been thrust out onto sort of CNN and, or Fox News as this political thing. And so there's always this discussion about this judge in Arkansas or a judge in Alabama who refuses to take the Ten Commandments down. I don't mean to get into any of that stuff, but what I do mean to tell you is that the Ten Commandments has a real application for your real life and the real world, and it's the world that you wish really existed. A second thing we talked about as we went through the Ten Commandments is the idea that the first four commandments are really Godward in their focus in the sense that you know, we're told to have no other gods before God. We're told to have no idols. We're told to honor God's name and to use it rightly and reverently. We're told to keep the Sabbath. Those are all man a Godward in their focus. The last six commandments are all manward in the sense that they talk about the way that we live our lives with our fellow men. And so we're told not to commit adultery. We're told not to steal. We're, not to, we're told not to bear false witness. And in doing so, what's happened is that God is, is creating this fabric. He's creating this tapestry of a strong and beautiful culture and society where we protect our relationship with God, but we also protect our relationship with our fellow man. Now, the other thing that I've talked about over and over again is part of what's happening in the Ten Commandments is as we go through them and we look at the, the breadth and the depth of the Ten Commandments, we realize just how often we failed to keep the Ten Commandments either in the way that we've acted or the ways that we've spoken or the ways that we've thought in our, in our heads or in our hearts. And so the Ten Commandments also drive us to Jesus. They, they remind us of our need for a hero. They were never intended to save us. They were never intended uh, to be used as a way for us to earn God's affection or his approval. Instead, they've always been intended to drive us to his son, our hero, Jesus. Last thing is this. As we go through the Ten Commandments, it's very easy to read them, and it's very easy to think, oh man, I wish my husband were here this morning. Or it's very easy to read through the Ten Commandments and to come across a certain one and go, oh man, I really wish my, my coworker or my mom or my aunt or whoever could hear this. But one of the things you need to understand is the Ten Commandments were written by God in such a way so that they're all given in the second person singular. In other words, all of these are for you, the individual that is sitting in this room this morning. That you're here this morning, not by chance, but rather you're here because God has something for you to hear. And in particular, each of these commandments is given for you to figure out how to apply them 
to your life. Now, I'm going to read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. And after I read this, I'm going to take one moment, and I'm going to pray and ask that God would simply be with us and that he would bless uh, the reading of his word and the preaching of his word. Let's take a moment and read Exodus chapter 20, it's one, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. It's also in your handout. And God spoke all these words, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, showing love to thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, in it you lead us into uncomfortable truths. And Father, like a a good doctor, you reveal to us um, the disease uh, that lurks within our hearts. And so, Father, I pray that, uh, that you would be at work removing the disease within us, Father, by the work of your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, uh, would be in this room this morning, that he would work in us, that no one would be able to leave this place without having had an encounter with you. But I also pray, Father, that, that even through our time together this morning, that the Holy Spirit would be at work removing that sin from our hearts. Father, we pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So uh, for any of you guys who have uh, spent any time with me, uh, you know that uh, I'm pretty quick to, to over-disclose. I'll tell you all sorts of different things about who I am as a person. I'll tell you all things about my personal story. And so some of you guys, um, I've told you about um, different sides of my family. Well, on my mom's side of the family, one of the things that I became aware of very uh, early on is that there were lots of women on that side of the family. I had lots of aunts and great aunts, but no uncles. And, uh, and there was a point in time where I asked my mom about this. I said, you know, where, where are all the men? Like, I hear you talking about these men, but I hear you all, you know, talking about them in the past tense. Well, come to find out that, you know, living in Pensacola, Florida, and sort of making their living on the bays or the bios or on the sea there, that uh, all these men lived hard lives. They uh, drank a lot, smoked a lot, and they ate nothing but fried food. In fact, I remember going into my great-grandmother's house. Uh, she lived on K Street in Pensacola, Florida, which is this, you know, really historic old section of Pensacola, a couple blocks off the bay. And every time I walked into her house, the first thing that hit me was the smell of southern cooking, southern food. And you'd walk sort of through the living living room. It was a shotgun house. 
and you'd make your way back to the, uh, to the kitchen area, which was in the rear of the house. And when I walked in the kitchen, there were always a couple very, very large southern women bustling around in the kitchen. And on the stove, there were two stainless steel pots almost constantly. And in those stainless steel pots, there were fried things that were just bubbling and cooking and frying in this oil. And as a kid, it just was, you know, the most wonderful place in the world to me. It was like a dream come true. Frankly, as an adult male, it would still be a dream come true for me because it was just, you know, fried goodness in the, you know, the deep south cooking in there. Well, part of the reason that I have no uncles is because they all died in their 40s of heart attacks, right? So somehow all the women lived to be in their 90s eating the same exact fried food, but it got all the men, they all died of this horrible heart disease. Now, I've got some statistics here on heart disease that you may find interesting. Heart disease is the number one cause of death for both men and women in the United States, claiming approximately 1 million lives annually. So heart disease, number one killer in the U.S., incredibly common. Next little statistic. More people die of heart disease in the United States than die of AIDS and all cancers combined. So again, it it just takes the life of so many people. By 2020, heart disease will be the leading cause of death throughout the world. This year, more than 920,000 Americans will have a heart attack. An estimated 80 million Americans have one or more types of heart disease. Currently, about 8 million Americans are alive who have had a heart attack. In 2008, the total cost of cardiovascular disease, this is coronary heart disease, hypertensive disease, heart failure, and stroke in the U.S., was estimated at $448 billion, which was over twice the amount that uh, was spent in cancer. The statistics go on and on and on. But the point is, is this heart disease is uh, not only taking huge numbers of lives, but it's also affecting people's physical lives, the way they live on a day-to-day basis. And part of what's interesting about heart disease is very often the symptoms of heart disease have very little to do with the heart directly. In other words, you might feel pain in your arm. You might feel dizziness in your head. You might feel short of breath. But all the symptoms are really on the exterior of your body, even though the problem is really at the very center of your being in your heart. Does that make sense? And so coveting in the 10th commandment is actually something very close to that. It's really like spiritual heart disease where the symptoms of sin are seen on the exterior of a human being's activity, but the real issue is deep down in people's hearts internally. And so coveting, this idea of not coveting, is the perfect bookend of the Ten Commandments because before we ever break one of the other commandments externally, we've almost always broken that commandment internally long before in the recesses of our heart through coveting. Now, there was a 19th century German philosopher and anthropologist whose name was Max Scheler, and uh, he said this. It's a great quote. Again, not a Christian, very much a humanist, but here's what he had to say. He called coveting a self-poisoning of the mind. Okay, let me read that one more time. Here's philosopher, anthropologist, not a believer. A self-poisoning of the mind leading to revenge, hatred, malice, envy, the impulse to detract and spite originating in the repression of normal human emotions by injustice and oppression and spreading like a psychological contagion. Isn't it amazing to hear a humanist, again, not a believer, talking about this issue of coveting and saying it's self-poisoning of the mind. It's a psychological contagion. And let me tell you, I can absolutely verify 
what he's saying because I've had the spiritual contagion many, many times in my life. And I'm kind of a spiritual guy. You know, I'm a professional Christian. And if I've struggled with this spiritual contagion of coveting, my guess is that so have you. And typically coveting manifests itself in all these insidious ways before they ever reach something uh, that's more detrimental. They usually show, it usually rears its head through discontent or bitterness with the actual life that God our Father has actually given us. Now let's take a moment and let's find out what exactly the 10th commandment, uh, the command not to covet, what it actually means. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read sort of a thesis statement two times. The thesis statement is this. The, the negative prohibition, that is a tautology, I realize, smart people out there, but the negative prohibition of the 10th commandment is that we must not set our desires upon someone or something that doesn't belong to us. The positive requirement of the 10th commandment is that we content ourselves or we're satisfied with whatever God has given us. Let me read that thesis statement one time. The prohibition of the 10th commandment is that we must not set our desires upon someone or something that doesn't belong to us. The requirement of the 10th commandment is that we content or satisfy ourselves with what God has given us. Let's look at the first half of that thesis statement, the prohibition about not setting our desire upon something or someone that doesn't belong to us. Now, first of all, the word covenant, uh, covet, is one that Brad mentioned a little while ago at the beginning of the service. We wouldn't use the word covet if it hadn't been written into the King James Bible about 300 years ago. It just wouldn't exist in American language anymore. So let me tell you that. And so if you happen to have grown up in the church, then the word covet is familiar to you. But if you're not from a churchy background, it's probably relatively unfamiliar with you. Now, it's actually a translation of, the, of, a, of a Hebrew word, and that Hebrew word simply means to, to desire, right? And so it's, it's ultimately neutral in the Hebrew language because it can either be used to talk about setting your desire upon something good or setting your desire upon something that's bad. And so in other words, if you set your desire upon your wife, that's a great thing. If you set your desire upon your family as a father, that's a good thing. If as a student you set your desire upon making good grades or having a career in medicine or having a career as an academician or any other ways, all those ways you can set your desire upon something and it's perfectly good. In fact, the Bible talks about any number of ways in which we are to set our desires upon things. The real issue and the prohibition in the 10th commandment is not setting your desire upon just anything, but it's a, the problem is setting your desire upon the wrong thing. It's upon setting your desire upon something or someone that belongs to something else. Now, there's, a, there's a man who taught at uh, the University of Campen in Holland or in the Netherlands. He's a theology professor, and he talks about the four stages of desire. Let me, let me read these to you really quickly. I wish I had the PowerPoint. We could put them up on the screen he says there are really four stages of desire. And he says the first stage of desire is the initial confrontation. It's when you are initially tempted with something, X, Y, or Z. The second stage of desire is when you nurse or nurture that desire. Does that make sense? It's when you start daydreaming about that car that you wish you had. Or it's when you start you know, daydreaming about that life that you wish that you had, right? It's nursing and nurturing the desire. The third 
phase or stage of desire is planning the fulfillment of that desire, and then the fourth is acting on that desire. Does that make sense? And so it's the initial confrontation, it's nurturing the desire, it's planning the fulfillment of that desire, or it's acting on that desire. Now, again, we already said that desire is neutral depending on what you place your desire upon, but we can see if we take a story like the story of David and Bathsheba in Scripture, we can see how those four phases of desire work out, right? You know the story of David and Bathsheba. David is the king of Israel. And, uh, you know, we're told in uh, 2 Samuel 11 that uh, while David is walking around on the roof, his people have gone out to war, and he's walking around the roof of his house, and he sees a woman bathing, right? Now, I I do not know about how these things worked back then. I don't know if she wasn't supposed to be bathing on the roof. I don't know if he wasn't supposed to be walking on the roof. What I do know is that when you're confronted with that initial temptation, as Duma talked about in the four stages of desire, you've got a choice. And one of your choices is to go, whoo, holy cow, and to walk off the roof, down the stairs, and go take a cold shower, or to, you know, go to the market, or whatever, right? You've got an option to walk away from that initial temptation. But what we see in the story is that David doesn't do that. He nurses or nurtures the desire when he sees Bathsheba. And he sends some of his servants to go down and find out about her. They come back, and they tell him, they say, oh, by the way, sorry, that's uh, Uriah's wife, right? Uh, In other words, she's taken, right? But unfortunately, what David then does is he sends someone to go get her and to bring her to the royal palace, and you know the rest of the story. The point is, is that he begins coveting. He sets his desire upon someone who doesn't belong to him, some thing that doesn't belong to him, but instead belongs to someone else. But it began when he began to nurture the desire that he had been faced with. The Ten Commandment, the Tenth Commandment, gives us any number of different applications for this. And so you can look in your handout if you want to in verse 17 there, but I'll read them. The Tenth Commandment makes it very clear that we're not to covet someone else's house, right, or household. And so Again, some of you have actually done this before. You've experienced this before. You go to somebody's house, and they've got a sweet hot tub on their back porch, and you start going, I wish we had a hot tub on our back porch, right? You know, or maybe you, you know, look at their house, and they've got a basement. And maybe you think, you know, I wish we had a basement in our house. You know, or maybe you look at their house, and they've got a great master bath or a fourth bedroom. Or maybe they've got a, a great deck or a porch. Or maybe they live in a great neighborhood. And what happens is is you can actually begin to crave and to want something that doesn't belong to you, something that God hasn't given you. And it really cuts both ways because not only does it make you start desiring that thing you don't have, but it really begins to breed in you bitterness and discontentment with what you do have. All of a sudden, your house that God has given you isn't so great anymore. The 10th commandment goes on to talk about not coveting someone else's wife, or I'll fill in the blank here and say husband. And so there are people who look at another you know, man's wife and they go, man, she's a great cook. I wish my wife were a great cook. You know, or maybe it's a wife who looks at a husband and says, you know, her husband looks like he's a real leader. Whenever I see him, he's really decisive. I wish my husband were that decisive. I wish he were a real leader. You know, or again, maybe a guy looks at somebody else's wife and says, man, his wife is his biggest cheerleader. I wish my wife was a cheerleader for me. Or her husband has such a stable, well-paying job. I wish my husband did. The list goes on and on and on. The Tenth Commandment says, don't covet someone else's servant, right? So some of you could say, man, I wish I had a maid to come clean my house once every two weeks. 
you know, or I wish I had someone to come, come and mow my lawn. It goes on to say, don't covet their ox or their donkey, right? Transportation or a work vehicle. And so some of you have said before, man, I really like her huge SUV. You know, when she goes to pick up her kids in the pickup line from school, she's in that huge SUV. I, you know, it must be nice to be able to pick up your kids in a 2014 Suburban. Or some of you guys have said, man, I love his truck. That's awesome truck. You know, I love the King Cab and I love the wheels and I love the whatever. Some of you have said that before. Some of you have said, you know, I love that person's Mini Cooper. I wish I could have one. I love that guy's Harley Davidson. If you're my dad, who I love, and I don't mean to throw him under the bus, but my dad has been coveting lawn tractors since I was a child, you know. He walks by Lowe's and he looks at the lawn tractors out front and he just gets this far away look in his eyes, right? The list of coveting could go on and on and on. You know, you can covet somebody else's kids, right? You could covet children, period, something that God hasn't given you. You could covet clothing or hair or complexion or personality or intelligence or athleticism. The list goes on and on and on again. But what the reason that coveting is so insidious is because it not only is sort of one step on the pathway towards breaking the other nine commandments, it makes you long for those things that God hasn't given you, but maybe the most insidious thing of all is it makes you bitter and discontent with the things and the people that God has given you. We see this story played out in the very first sin. Theologians will argue about what the first sin was. Was it pride? Was it this? Was it that? But what we see is we see that Satan comes to Eve... And he says, you got everything in the whole garden. You know, no sin has entered the world yet. Life was good. And he said, did God really say that you're not to eat of any tree in the garden? And so what Satan essentially does is he makes her not only uh, distrust God or become displeased with God or become bitter towards God, but he makes her long for the one thing in the perfect world that she's not allowed to possess. And she reaches out and she takes it, right? Coveting is nasty. It's, it's spiritual heart disease, right? It's a poisoning of the mind. It's a, it's a psychological contagion. Now, what's the flip side? The positive requirement of the 10th commandment is exactly the opposite of, of covetousness. It's that we content or satisfy ourselves with whatever God has given us. Listen to 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, Paul's writing, and he says this. He says, now there's great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, here's the irony. The irony of coveting is that we're trying to get something. But in the process, we lose not only something, but we lose everything. We lose our joy. We lose our happiness. What Paul is saying here is that in contentment, We are actually learning to accept not having something, and in the process of learning to accept not getting something or not having something, we get everything. We get happiness, we get joy, we get contentment. There's a a great quote that I'm about ready to read you, that I'm going to read you, by a man named Edward Bouvier. This is Cabell. If, If Cabell's in here this morning, she gave me this quote, who is a professor of theology at Oxford. He says this. He says, if we wished to gain contentment, we might try rules such as these. So here's this man, this professor of theology, who, by the way, lost his wife very early on in their marriage and lost his son as well. He's speaking about different ways we can become content. Number one, he says this, 
Allow thyself to complain of nothing, not even the weather. This morning, I applied this principle seven times. Seriously, not even kidding. Not going to even go into that because I just broke the Tenth Commandment. Okay, number two. He says, never picture thyself, never picture thyself to thyself under any circumstances in which thou art not. Never picture thyself to thyself under any circumstances in which thou, thou art not. In other words, don't fantasize about a life or a situation that you don't have because guess what happens? You just become less content and less happy with the real life that you really have. Number three, never compare thine own lot with that of another. Krista has taught me so many things. My wife has taught me so many things in marriage. But one of the things she's taught me is quit comparing yourself with other people. That leads to no place good. It only makes you less happy with the person that you really are. Number four, never dwell on the morrow. Remember that it is God's, not thine. The heaviest part of sorrow often is to look forward to it. He says, the Lord will provide. And fifth, never allow thyself to dwell on the wish that this or that had been or were otherwise than it was or is. God Almighty loves thee better and more wisely than thou dost love thyself. Does that make sense? So part of what Edward Bouvier is saying here is he's basically saying all those things lead to discontentment and bitterness and unhappiness and contentment leads you on the path to joy and happiness and being thrilled with the real life that God has really given you. And he ends by saying this. He says, the reason to do all of this isn't some psychological mind game that you have to play with yourself. Rather, what he's saying is you need to understand that you have a heavenly father who loves you more than you love yourself. So be content, be satisfied in knowing that this this all-knowing, all-loving, all-wise God gives you exactly what you need. Jeremiah Burroughs echoes this sentiment in the rare jewel of Christian contentment. He says this, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Does that make sense? The same thing, Jeremiah Burroughs' writing says this, your contentment comes from knowing that God loves you more than you love yourself. And he knows exactly what you need all the time. Does that make sense? Last thing. Again, we always have to a- answer the question, what about Jesus? You know, Because I-, I don't know that I've said anything today that a good Jew wouldn't agree with, right? But rather, we need to ask ourselves, you know, what role does Jesus have in this idea of contentment? Listen to the words of Hebrews 13.5. Basically, the, the, the author of Hebrews is saying this. He's talking about contentment. He's talking about satisfaction. And he says this, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, Jesus has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, the writer of Hebrews saying is the key to contentment is understanding that Jesus is with you. In sickness and in health, in poverty and in wealth, that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. You you know, we covet because we feel an infinite hollow within ourselves, which all of the finite things of earth can never, will never be able to fill. 
And to fill that infinite hollow, only an infinite Savior, an infinite Son will ever do. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for a challenge to be content, to be satisfied, not only in the earthly things that you as a father have provided for us, but even further, Father, that we would find the source, the origin, and the heart of our contentment in knowing that your son Jesus has promised to be with us and that he will never leave us or forsake us. And so, Father, I pray that we would be content in sickness and in health, in suffering, in poverty, in pain, Father, that we would be content in knowing that your son Jesus stands by our side. Father, we pray all these things today in his name. Amen.